Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. We finished Galatians. And if you're watching online this morning, that would not be you guys here. You don't need to turn your smartphones on. Uh, but those of you that are home, sick, we're glad you can join us. It's great to say that, isn't it? Those of you that have been home and, and had a chance to watch online, my wife is back after two weeks being away. She was tired of seeing me for two No, it wasn't that. Uh, she's back after our family was hit with everything. Praise the Lord, somehow God allowed me to navigate that obstacle course and not get sick, and, uh, which was no small miracle. Um, but the online stuff was helpful, and uh, we're glad. Uh, I know we've got some people on business trips right now. Wherever you are, hope you're watching and can join with us in the study. But Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to read just verses 1 through 5. 1 through 5, and then we'll uh, take a look here. Starting in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and you remember he said that to the Galatians, and he says that here as well stating the calling that God had given him. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. And call himself to be one. It was the work of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Boy, I would love for Jesus, by the Spirit, to say that at Calvary Chapel of Richmond. To the saints who are in Chesterfield County at Calvary Chapel of Richmond, faithful in Christ Jesus. That's a great testimony right there. Grace to you and peace. I believe God's saying that to us this morning. Grace to us and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Some of these blessings we're not realizing yet, but they're, they're reserved for us in heaven. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Father, we ask again for the ministry of your spirit now through your word upon this teaching. Lord, drive out every distraction Anything, Lord, that would keep us from being rested and settled right now to hear from you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Now, this study um, is going to be part uh, background, at least it's studied here today, the study this morning, I, I should say. It's going to be part background and, and probably a little bit more background this morning because every time we start a new book, I, I want you to understand the context of which it was written, uh, why it was written, so you have kind of a, a real framework of this book specifically and why it was written by Paul and, and what kind of the uh, audience was who was hearing it, who the audience was, but also part excitement. So the background part, we need to understand. Uh, the background part, I was talking to the men on Friday about, we were in 1 Timothy, and you know, Paul was talking about being called to be both a teacher and a preacher. Well, the first part is going to be teaching, then I'll save a little preaching for the end. 
So, because there has to be the part that is the exhortation, that's the excitement of what the Lord himself is testifying here, even in these first five verses, because we're just looking at these five verses this morning. The excitement of what the Lord is testifying through Paul in being what God wants for us individually, but also wants for us collectively as a church. So again, the background, but then this kind of exhortation, even through a greeting, because that's what this first part is. There's a greeting. Remember last week we finished Galatians, that was a salutation, which is the ending, right? Whenever you write someone a letter, you write it with at least some level of enthusiasm to capture the attention, but you finish it with something important that kind of ties a bow on it. Last week we did a closing, this week is an opening, but there is both background needed, but also God wants to exhort us. Now, if you enjoyed worshiping Jesus in song this morning, and clearly we did, if you enjoyed worshiping Jesus, you're going to love this morning's study because it's going to be a lot about Jesus, a lot about the fact that he really is the all in all. He really does hold the whole world in his hand, doesn't he? You remember that song, you know, kids used to sing, he's got the whole world in his hand, remember that one? It's true. It's our study this morning is called Jesus at the Center. He really does have everything in his hands. But here's the thing. Even though Jesus has not just the world in his hand, even though he has the universe in his hands, the Bible says that someday God will roll it up like a scroll, which is hard for us to fathom because, you know, just some stars are bigger than our, uh, our entire solar system. I mean, we're talking about these just massive bodies of matter and space that God holds it all in the palm of his hand, not just the earth. But Jesus' blessing, which I think all of us want to be blessed by the Lord, right? His blessing, the shaping of our lives, the strengthening of our lives, well, that only happens to those who are surrendered in his hand. Even though he holds everything in his hand, even, even the unsaved world is held in his hand, Right? But only those that are surrendered, the blessing, the shaping, and the strengthening, that, that comes from those that really are yielded to the Lord. Only those lives where Jesus really is the center. And you have to ask yourself, and I have to ask myself, is Jesus really the center of my life, or is he just some little piece in the room, right? Or is he the center of it all? The center of it all to you, the center of it all to me, but also the center of it all to Calvary Chapel of Richmond. Can't be something else. Has to be him. Well, I want to take the time to kind of give a little backdrop here. Um, it's called Ephesians because it's written to the church that was in the city of what? Ephesus. Ephesus was a city. You see the little star there? You might see the tiny little star on um, the coast of Turkey. That's on the western coast of Turkey. And um, that's where Ephesus was located. Then, if you look at Ephesus within kind of the areas, and this isn't all of where Paul's missionary journey, because obviously he finishes, is in Rome. But this is the majority, which you see in the map here, which includes, you know, Cyprus and Crete, and uh, which would be modern-day Lebanon, where Antioch is, and all the way down to Caesarea, which is northern Israel, uh, Athens, Corinth. Those were areas like Greece and Macedonia, and the upper part where we just finished in the book of Galatia, see Galatia up on the, on the northern part of Turkey, that was Galatia. Uh, but Ephesus, you can see, is 
not in Galatia, it's down on the coast on the western side of Turkey. And, uh, you know, it was a very sophisticated city, a very modern city in a, of its day. Um, if you look, take a look at um, uh, an aerial view, this is today, there's a, a, a view from Google Earth here. Uh, you can see the coastline here, but at, at the time of Ephesus, the harbor went all the way to right there. So all that has filled in today with sediment and landmass, and so um, the harbor did come all the way up to where you see that road begins. That's an aerial view, and you can see today, see all the tour buses? <laughs> Those are tour buses right there because that's where all the tour buses park, and the people come down, and you can walk the ruins of the city. For the other side of here, there's the tour buses. They're right there. And then you park your tour bus. And if you get to go to Israel with us in 2019, we do the same thing because there's both Roman ruins and there's uh, Jewish uh, ruins as well. And, and the, there has to be a place for the tour buses to park so tourists like us can walk around with our cameras and everything else and take a look how people lived 2,000 years ago. But those are the ancient ruins uh, right here. And um, just to give you an idea of this is the layout of, of ancient Ephesus. This is what it looked like uh, if you were looking at an aerial view of the layout of the city when the Apostle Paul was there. Now, this is, these, are the, these are the primary buildings. There would have also been, there would have also been homes and villages in, in the surrounding areas as well. But these are the primary buildings that were built by the city. These were government buildings. These were temples. These were even things like brothels bathhouses, all of that stuff, because this was all the norm of, of the, the Greco-Roman society. So all of that was, was there. And then we'll take a look at this in just a couple of minutes. That was the Temple of Diana or Artemis up there. You'd have to go outside the city um, a little bit north to get to that temple, which is right there, right there. And then this is a this is a little mountaintop right here. So the city's kind of built around it, not a high mountain, kind of think of like uh, Monticello, where, uh, uh, where Monticello is. It's, a, it's a, not really a mountain, but a knoll, but it's still tall enough you kind of build around the ridge that's around the bottom of it, similar. So that's kind of an aerial view, and this is what a rendering, and again, this doesn't include, this just shows the, the part of the city that was built up by uh, Ephesus and by the Roman government. This does not show the villages and stuff that are all around the city there, but um, you get an idea. That amphitheater is huge right there. That amphitheater is mentioned in Acts chapter 19. A riot breaks out. You know, wherever Paul went, he sometimes caused riots, but not because he was protesting, but because he was preaching the gospel. People would get saved and other people wouldn't like it. By the way, when people get saved, some people in your life won't like it. Now, they won't start a riot, but they'll, they'll act like a rioter in some cases. I can't believe you've done this. You know, this isn't the way we raised you. You're from this family. We don't believe in Jesus around here. And you say, well, I do. So it, it, it ruffles feathers and wherever Paul went. So actually that riot spilled out. There were so many people that they filled up this amphitheater to have a, you know, the, the town council basically try and calm everybody and let's talk through this. That took place. You can read about it. Acts chapter 19. But you can see the harbor. See it right there, a little bit of water right on the edge. That's where a ship could dock. Paul could jump off the ship. Now you could get to Ephesus by land or by sea because it also had roads coming from other cities 
This was a major, major metropolis of its day. And um, Paul actually got there by foot, but also uh, you could get there uh, right in the harbor and kind of get dropped off. Whoa, I don't know what that was. <laughs> Had nothing to do with Ephesus, just so you know. <laughs> That's modern Chesterfield County right there. That's not Ephesus. But All right. Take a look. Um, these are the ruins today. So if you were go, if you were to go to Ephesus, and I've talked, I have not been to Ephesus, but you can take Bible land tours through Greece and through Turkey and through Lebanon and and all the way down into Israel. I haven't been to Ephesus. I'd like to go. I'd love to go, uh, but uh, you can tour Ephesus and see the, the very places where Paul walked and taught. Um, there is uh, I. I, I haven't read of anything, even though there was Jewish synagogue, uh, Jewish synagogue there, I have not seen anything about that as a ruin, but there may be, I just don't know. But I do know that uh, if you go here, uh, a lot of the places that you see on the, on the kind of the relief picture, parts of those buildings still remain. Um, you can take a tour. And then this is the amphitheater. It's still, it's still pretty intact. The Romans loved amphitheaters. Now, Unlike Americans, the Romans love their entertainment. <laughs> Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We, we ain't called the, the, the late Roman Empire for no reason, right? We, we, we love our theaters too, and our stadiums, and our entertainment. It's interesting that, that history repeats itself again and again and again. The very things that they fell in love with are the very things that we fell in love with. If we could go back time and hand them a smartphone, they would gladly take it. Hey, thank you. This just added to our pleasure. You know, now we, we don't even have to leave it. Uh, we've got it all right here. But uh, the theaters are still there. If you, if you get a chance to go to Israel, you'll see some of these amphitheaters as well, um, both in uh, Israel. On well, I can't remember the city we were in. But then Caesarea, there's one there as well. So... With that, I want to take a look here at this last um, image. This was the temple of Diana or Artemis. And this is actually what was taking place. Uh, this is a rendering of it. it. It's not there today. There's only like one column left and rubble uh, of the temple of Diana and Artemis. And I, told you, I showed you it was outside the city. You had to kind of walk around. It was on an elevated plane there. This, uh, this particular temple, though, um, it wasn't the only temple in Ephesus. There was other temples to different gods and different goddesses. Kind of like, you know, uh, like Hinduism has many gods. Well, ancient Rome and Greece, they worshipped many gods, too. They didn't just have one, but they had special gods for things. The god of the hunt, the god of fertility, the god of the sun and the moon. They had gods for everything. The Egyptians did as well. So if you go all the way back to the Egyptian time, they had different gods for different things, different seasonal gods. I mean, not they, they were always there, but I mean gods that kind of govern different seasons or different times. So this wasn't the only temple in Ephesus. Uh, there were others, but this was the crown jewel. This was the crown jewel of all of Ephesus. This is what the town was known for. This was the Statue of Liberty. This was the iconic, uh, you know, just everyone knew. When you talked Ephesus, the immediate thought in their mind was the Temple of Diana, or called Artemis. It was in their mind. Like when you think New York City, you think like Empire State Building, or you think Statue of Liberty. It has something iconic. You think Washington, D.C., you think Washington Monument or the Capitol Building, right? Certain buildings 
uh, are associated with a city. When you think London, you think the London Bridge, or you think Big Ben. It's just they're in our minds. So this was um, the crown jewel of the city. Uh, now, it was a prominent city. Ephesus was a prominent city with or without this temple. It was a prominent city. It was nonetheless, though, known for this temple of all the other things that the city was known for. And it was known for its history. The history of this temple uh, had, a, had just kind of a pageantry, and people loved to tell about all the things that, that had come in, in history as far as all the things that this temple stood for. They ended up having a festival for the goddess Diana. And she was, by the way, the goddess of fertility. Uh, matter of fact, her image looks much like some of the... Um, it reminds me of some of the, the goddesses you'll see in, in India. Uh, just kind of, she has kind of these, they're either eggs uh, or anatomy that, uh, all around uh, her torso. We don't really, people debate about what it is, but she's the goddess of fertility. And um, there was a mystique around her, the temple, the city itself. Uh, they had artisans. Now, the artisans were the ones that started the riot because when Paul was there, the artisans made a lot of money making little goddesses of Diana out of silver and, and other things too, what you could afford. If you could afford the all-silver one, we got your wooden one here, we got you know, you, you, what you can afford all down the line, right? We got your higher-priced and your lower-priced options. But Demetrius was a silversmith, so he made these silver ones, and he made a whole lot of money because rich people from around the world would come to Ephesus, and they could be Egyptian, they could be from Cyprus, they could be from Rome, they could be from the Far East or the Near East. The world knew about this temple, and they would come to look at it, and because they were impressed by it, they wanted to go back and take something home as a souvenir or even to worship it, really actually add it to their idol collection. They would buy these figurines. Well, when Paul got to town, he started preaching about the true and living God, and Demetrius and his guys that were in the business were getting a little bit worried. And that's what started kind of a, um, a bit of a revolt against the ministry of Paul. But they were available there for person. Now, Paul directly confronted the idolatry of Ephesus, not just of Diana, but all their idolatry, because they, they had a lot of different things that they worshipped there. And he directly confronted it when he was preaching Jesus Christ, and he's preaching repentance, because God says, I shall have no other gods before me, Right? You can't come to Jesus and still hold on to your gods. You have to let go of the gods to grab hold of the life preserver. And so Paul would let people know that, say, no, you, if you're going to come to Jesus, you have to let go of the gods. You can't go worship in the temple of Diana anymore. But it's beautiful there. That's great. You can see it from a distance, but it can't be your place anymore. And by the Spirit, Paul also, because this is something that was given to the apostles, and we don't see this I'm not saying that's never happened anywhere else, but it, it, it seems to be most concentrated only on the life of the apostles. The apostles were able to do some of the miracles that Jesus did. They were given supernatural miracles at times, not at all times, but at times the Spirit would come, just like in the prophets, you would see Samson, God would come upon him, you know, you'd see Elijah or Elisha, Moses, and the same would be true. Paul, the Spirit would come upon him. In the book of Acts, it says that Paul did various miracles there. Well, that'll get the attention of people that believe in the supernatural, won't it? Because they're talking about the supernatural, and Paul was doing the supernatural, and they saw it. 
uh, with their own eyes. And this made it clear to many people in Ephesus that Jesus held the power and authority that their so-called gods and goddesses supposedly held. That makes sense? Jesus actually really did hold it. Their gods and goddesses supposedly had it. They were false gods. Listen to what it says in Acts 19.19. This is what happened when people received the message of the gospel, then they got legitimately and soundly saved. They really did repent. They really did turn to Christ in Ephesus. And they could have been generations of idol worshipers. Listen to what it says in Acts 19.19. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. Not 50 pieces of silver, 50,000 pieces of silver worth of magic books, which, by the way, weren't magic. We have a lot of things in America that people are trusting in that are not magic. And they don't work anymore now than they did in 1919. They're just repackaged, repurposed, resold, re-given to people as some kind of panacea that never really works. And so 50,000, just to give you some perspective, 50,000 pieces of silver is 50,000 days of wages. That's how much repentance took place. You want to talk about him impacting the city? No wonder Demetrius called a meeting in the amphitheater and said, everyone in the city has got to meet. Paul is going to destroy our livelihood. People are getting saved right and left in Ephesus. Now, there is still, everywhere there's a revival. Even, look at today. Do you think California could use a revival? <laughs> California could definitely use a revival. Now, Virginia can too, but I'm just saying, California is a huge state. Biggest state, population-wise, the United States. That's where the Jesus movement took place. There's many great churches in California. You've heard Dr. David Jeremiah on the radio. You've heard John MacArthur on the radio. You've heard Pastor Chuck Smith. Been now, you know, uh, we've got other Raw Reese's there, you know, all these different churches. There's great churches in California, but millions of unsaved people there. Well, in Ephesus, even though a lot of people were getting saved, there was still way more that weren't saved. And so there was still a lot of work to be done. Same true in Chesterfield County. We might have X number of churches that are solid Bible-leading churches, good pastors, good churches, and yet we still have a lot of work to do here. And a lot of work was being done, but 50,000 days wages was having an impact, and it caught people's attention. But just can you imagine if there was an outbreak of a revival in New York City? I don't know if you've ever been to Soho and Greenwich Village, but sometimes you have to do this with your eyes. <laughs> if you've ever been to New York City, there's just, you'll see artwork that needs to be never shown again. <laughs> can you imagine if there was an outbreak of revival in New York City, and people of their own accord, no one telling them to do it, just got grabbing art off the walls that's worth a ton and saying, into the dumpster it goes. Taking their own CDs, no one telling them to do it, into this music I will never listen to again, right into the dumpster. Magazines that they know they shouldn't be looking at, right into the dumpster. That's what happened. Paul didn't say, hey, by the way, all of you. They just immediately, the Holy Spirit says, you can't do this anymore. You know, somebody could get so convicted say, I have got so much junk on my smartphone, I'm tossing it and going back to a dumb phone. <laughs> and that would be a proof that the Holy Spirit had spoken very clearly to somebody because the repentance was strong. That's what Zacchaeus did. His repentance was so strong, he said, 
I'm not only going to pay people back, I'm going to pay them back way more than I owe them. That's what repentance looks like. The temple here, though, this temple, it was completely rebuilt three times. This is how much they loved this thing. It was completely built, rebuilt three times. Uh, the first rebuilding took place, get this, 550 to 540 B.C. So we're talking 550 years before Christ. 550, 540 B.C. It was the first time it was rebuilt. And they think it was actually built originally back in the 7th century B.C. Then it was destroyed by arson when originally on the, on the, the first rebuilding, the upper, the upper beams were made of wood on the pitch of the roof, and they set fire to it. Someone set fire to it. This is just like today. Someone set fire to it become, to become famous. You th- People haven't changed much, have they? Say, like, what in the world? Yes, yeah, someone set fire to it become famous. Uh, it burned down. Now, this happened according to the Greek and Roman historians as well as tradition. It happened on the exact same night that Alexander the Great was born which was July 20th or 21st, 356 B.C. And the historian Plutarch, who was alive back in ancient times, he commented, this is classic, he said, and again, he's, he's from that time period, he said that Artemis, or, or the goddess Diana, she was preoccupied with the birth of Alexander the Great that night, <laughs> therefore unable to assist with the burning down of the temple. This is the gods the world believes in. This is why in the Old Testament, one of the prophets mocked uh, and said, perhaps your God is using the bathroom. (laughs) Right? Just to mock, to say, hey, my God can do everything. He says, your God apparently has, can't manage the Alexander the Great birth and manage the temple thing at the same time, right? You can do one or the other, and she decided to go with the Alexander the Great birth. But the temple was completely rebuilt these three times. Now understand, um, uh, by the way, um, Paul, when he would come and proclaim there, think about what this temple, what this goddess meant to them, and, and even that Alexander the Great was born on the night that it was destroyed. Remember, Paul knows all these things. These were common knowledge to the people. He comes and then he preaches the true and living God who brought his son into the world on a special night, through a virgin birth that was announced by angels and then would raise from the dead. So when they would actually hear a story like that, they were used to these mythical stories, although Alexander the Great really was born, and he really was real, but the goddess Diana wasn't. But Paul would present, no, 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 this God that I'm telling you about really did send a son, and he is the ruler of the world. He's the God and Father that is infinitely greater than Alexander the Great or this false goddess of Diana, this mythical ruler. And Alexander the Great later, now get this, Alexander the Great, when he grew up, and he lived a short life, as most of you have studied history, you you know this, uh, but when he grew up and ascended to power, he actually offered the city of Ephesus to rebuild the temple because it hadn't been rebuilt at that point. He offered the city of Ephesus with his money, which was everybody else's money that he took, but anyway, with his money to rebuild the temple at his expense, but they kindly and respectfully refused because Ephesus wanted the city to rebuild it because they, that was their identity, and they didn't even want Alexander the Great to be part of the identity of that building. That was their identity. They wanted to rebuild it at their own expense. 
So they did, but they, remember, this was their Eiffel Tower, if you will. It was their iconic identity. And so the third and final rebuilding, guess when it began? Just after Alexander the Great died. Because after he died, then, they didn't want to start building it while he was still alive. That would be kind of a slap in the face. But uh, then he passes, they immediately start to rebuild this temple, and it would become the largest and most magnificent of all the buildings that they had ever built. The previous ones were not as grand as this one. This one is longer, well, it was, not now. It was longer than a football field, wider than a football field, and six stories high. Had more than 127 columns around it, and it was on an elevated plane, so when you saw it, it just was like jaw-dropping in its, in its beauty. By the way, Satan can make a lot of impressive things, but they're only temporary. And you and I can get impressed by them. We do get impressed by them. We can watch even a, a secular musician say, wow, man, they're so good. But they'll fade away eventually. Had a commanding view. Um, uh, Antipater of Sidon, he was another historian of those days, um, you may have heard of the seven ancient wonders of the world. He's the guy that listed the seven ancient wonders, Antipater of Sidon. He was the one, when we talk about the seven ancient wonders of the world, the, the walls of Babylon, the hanging gardens of Babylon, the ancient pyramids, he's the one that came up with the list of seven, and this was in the list of seven. It was one of the seven. By the way, I have one bone to pick with him. The Jew Herod's temple should most definitely have been in that list. But there might have been a little bit of anti-Semitism or a little bit of prejudice against because the, the temple there in Jerusalem, Herod's temple, easily was as great as any of those were. But that notwithstanding, this was in the, in the Magnificent Seven or the Ancient One of the World. And this final temple, believe it or not, would stand for 600 years. 600 years. Now, think about that, how, long, how old America is. We're a little over 200 years. This temple, that one right there, stood for 600 years until it was finally destroyed by the Goths. Those were raiders from Germany, the Goths, in about 300 A.D. This temple structure was present when Paul was in Ephesus. He, he no doubt would probably allude to it at time to say, you know, the things of this world, the things of this world, point to things of this world. You know, in our lifetime, we would have never thought the, the Twin Towers could come down. I, there was never a time it had ever crossed my mind. I remember when I, the first time I went to New York City, and I went straight down. I, took the, I made sure I took the uh, New York subway down to the financial district so I could just stand and look up. Because I like buildings. Do you? I just, architecture, things like that. I said, I've got it. I don't care if I just go there for a minute. I just got to stand and look up at them. I had no, I never thought, my, never crossed my mind when I was looking up at the Twin Towers, well, these won't be here in a couple of years. Because that was, I stood there in the year 1999, and two years later, they were gone. But you just never know that God will let iconic things draw the world's attention to show that they are a passing thing. He does that. He allows, or he certainly allows that. Now, it stood for these 600 years, and um, this, this was the norm of what Paul would see. You know, the, the city, all of its grandiose, all the uh, amazing things about Ephesus that people would rave about, like people go to Vegas, oh, you've got to see this place, it's so, so impressive. 
Which, by the way, when I first went to Vegas, I was not impressed, but that's a different story. I'm sorry if you're from Las Vegas. There's good Calvary Chapel and Christians there, but, uh, but you know, cities like Ephesus and Las Vegas, they have enough other things that if you're a Christian, they just drain your spirit. You're like, you kind of groan in the spirit when you're there. So for Paul going to Ephesus, it wasn't like high five, hey, we get to go to Ephesus. It was like, we have to go to Ephesus, you know. <laughs> that, you know, we are compelled by the spirit to go to Ephesus. Why? It's the coolest city ever. They can get the best idols in the world there. That's why I don't want to go, you know. But he went. And even though this temple isn't there, the throne room of God is for eternity, ever Never moving, right? Now, Mike, most of the established cities where Paul went to, I referenced at the beginning that um, uh, there was a synagogue there, and, and there was a Jewish synagogue and a Jewish population and a Jewish community in Ephesus, just as there was in most of the Greco-Roman cities. So they would have their own Jewish community. They'd have their own synagogue. Rome was fine with it, didn't bother them about it. Um, but Paul would go into these synagogues, and Paul would do what? He'd open the Torah, and he would preach. And the cool thing was, even in Roman cities, there was already people that were Gentile that had adopted Judaism because they had become disenchanted with their gods and goddesses, and they were attracted to the God of Israel, even though that wasn't salvation or being born again. Make sense? They kind of they thought the stories of Moses sound more real than Diana, which they are more real, right? They kind of thought that the stories of Elijah were more real, and so they, there was many people that had been Gentile, you know, worshipers of false gods, that had moved and said, I'm going to be Jewish, and had become practicers of Judaism. So when Paul would go into a synagogue and he would teach to the synagogue, he automatically, God gave him a captive audience of both Jews and Gentiles because some of the Gentiles were already following Judaism. Not all of them. Again, there was a percentage. Some of their Gentile neighbors would say, you're nuts. Diana's way more fun than this Jewish thing. But some of them would say, but, but the Jewish thing feels more real to me than, than Diana or Zeus or Apollo or Isis. Not today's Isis. Isis goddess, Isis. And so, because they had a temple for her too, so these things, were, uh, these things were opportunities for Paul to reach two audiences at the same time when he would go into a synagogue, and that's what he did. And as was the case you know, in these other cities, when people would get saved, when Paul would preach, guess what, happened, what would happen with the synagogues? Jewish believers would emerge, and Gentile believers emerge, and so immediately Paul had diversity right out of the gate. He would have Jewish believers and Gentile believers, and that would start a little church. Now, Paul, we don't believe, is the one that started the initial church there. If you read the book of Acts, you'll read about a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. Heard of them? They had the same trade as Paul. They were tent makers like Paul. And they actually were the ones that we believe started the original church. By the way, God could use you to start a church even if you're not called to be a pastor. It does happen. In other words, you could witness to somebody. You could move to a city and there's no church. You could share the gospel. They get saved. And then you start what's called a home Bible study. The home Bible study grows, and then all of a sudden God says, you're now bigger than a home Bible study. You need to be a church. I will send you a pastor. And God sent Paul. And Paul said, hey, you guys are doing a lot of things well here. 
let me take you and expand the operation. And then many more people got saved when Paul came and God anointed the ministry and a church was planted. Uh, Timothy would even end up pastoring there for one year. But um, Paul himself, did you know he pastored Ephesus for three years? They got a special blessing. This doesn't happen often. Paul pastored the church of Ephesus for three years. He was mostly a church planter, but this church he poured into. He deeply invested in it. And he had a great love for the people there and a great love for the church there. And he made some of his uh, most poignant, deepest investments of time and energy in that church. And so as we enter this study this morning and these next uh, several weeks and uh, beyond as we go through this book, and as we look at these first five verses, this gives you some context. Does this help? Help you understand a little bit about where this is, who Paul's writing to, what the context, the Jewish context, the Gentile context, the idolatry that the city was kind of in bondage to, the darkness of the place. And it gives you some context uh, about Ephesus and about uh, what was there and how God began to transform a small group of people to have a huge impact on a pagan society. And it's also an encouragement to us that even in a place where there's a lot of sin, where there's a lot of pride, where there's a lot of famous stuff going on, because the world loves fame, they love notoriety, they love to be iconic. That's why a lot of musicians change their name to one name. Why do you think they do that? Because they want to be known as iconic. Two names, how lame. If you're not known as Madonna, right? You got to have a name, Prince, right? You got to have a name. Ephesus had a name, and so all the stuff, the idolatry, the fame, the rampant immorality, all of this stuff, it's encouragement to us that even in a place like that, the early church was growing and thriving. Do you know, Christian, we can grow and thrive right now today in America? Right here. Doesn't matter if we're in LA, New York, Chicago, Tokyo, the church can thrive anywhere if Jesus lit the match, right? And Jesus did light the match in Ephesus. He lit the match and he fanned it with the Holy Spirit and he fanned it by sending a man named Paul and he used a handful of surrendered men and women filled with the Holy Spirit to shake that city. As a matter of fact, it would go on to say that they shook all of Asia. Like a bomb went off, a spiritual bomb went off, a good bomb went off that actually blew out things that needed to go. Now, a couple of other important items to note. And again, I told you that most of this study this morning would be the background. I'm only going to have like seven minutes left, left to preach at the end here, three points. But I, that was all by design. I wanted you to have the background. So as we go forward in the study, I want you to be able to remember the city, the context, where the church was. A couple other important items to note. This letter was written by Paul when he was in prison. His burden was still strong for churches that he would not see, but he wanted to make sure that they stayed strong in the faith. He was in prison awaiting for trial in Rome, written somewhere between 60 and 62 A.D., at that same time, Paul composed three other letters. These were the, called the prison epistles. One was Colossians, which many people believe dovetails very closely with Ephesians. The other one is Philippians, and the last one is Philemon. Those were the four that he wrote during prison. Now, this is a, this is a real warning to us all. 
Guess what happens 30 years after this letter is written to the Ephesians? Jesus speaks from heaven to John, who's on the Isle of Patmos, and the first church he speaks to is who? Ephesus. 30 years later, Jesus said, you've lost your first love. They remained doctrinally sound 30 years later. They were still preaching the truth. They still had the radio program, if you will, right? They still had the dove on the, you know, everything they had. They were still doing, they were still doing it all, but they were now doing it just in motion. They were just, Jesus said 30 years later, that's not what Paul left you. Now you're just going through the motions. That's what Jesus said 30 years later to that church. Christian, you might have been saved 30 years ago. The same thing God would say, are you just going through the motions, or is it the work of the Holy Spirit? This is the things that, that uh, will, these are some of the things that we'll be looking at as we go through this book. Now, the first half of the letter, if you take the book and you look at chapters 1 through 3, and a little bit of part, chapter 4 as well, and there's some crossover, but in general terms, the first three chapters are theological in nature. What does that mean? Well, theological means these are the foundational doctrines and truths that the church must never abandon. You hear that? We can never abandon these things, ever. We can never abandon them. And they didn't abandon those things. That's why when Jesus spoke to them, they still were bound in truth. That was a good thing. He said, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Now there's not a work of the Spirit. But the first three um, are theological, and then the last three are practical in nature. If the first three are the what, the last three are the how to do it. Does that make sense? The first three chapters are the what, what we believe in. The last three chapters are how we walk in it. And so we'll look at both those things. How do we live out our faith regardless of the city, regardless of the circumstances? How do we do this? And it's an incredibly concise and complete book. And like I said at the beginning, I'm very excited. I'm uh, it's, uh, you know, when I, I used to be in this business world, we had product rollouts. This isn't a product rollout. This has been around for 2,000 years, but it's a relaunch, if you will, for us. It's a relaunch for us, all of us, to relaunch in our faith, and I'm excited about it. I hope it does a great work in your life and, and in our lives collectively. And in our limited time this morning, since I have about five minutes left to preach, I, I really do want to draw your attention to to three things, and you can jot these down as we go through. As I mentioned, you know, most of this I want to lay the backdrop for, for future weeks. But the first thing is what I've titled the center. In Paul's opening words here to the Ephesians, we read verses 1 through 5. That's all we read, five verses. In these five verses, Jesus is mentioned expressly in his glorious name five times. Let me reread the names that Paul references. In just five verses, Paul says the following. Verse 1, Jesus Christ. Also verse 1, Christ Jesus. Verse 2, Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5, Jesus Christ. Five verses, five times Jesus is mentioned. Each time, a full manifestation of his name, Jesus Christ. The Messiah, Emmanuel, all that rolled into one. Uh, turn with me real quick to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, take a left-hand turn. If you don't get there fast enough, I'm going to have to read for you. That's okay, right? John chapter 1, you know the passage. Many of you have read this many times, and maybe you've memorized it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John starts off with the premise that Jesus is everything. He's the beginning. He's the creation. He's the word. He's with God. He is God. John says, let's just get one thing straight. Jesus is at the center of it all. That's what he starts with the book of John. Turn with me to Colossians. Again, that was one of the other prison epistles. If you go back to Ephesians, just take a right-hand turn. Get Philippians, and then you get Colossians chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. Again, Paul writes both these in the same prison cell. Uh, may have been written parallel to begin with, but he says this in chapter 1, verse 17 through 18. And he is before, speaking of Jesus, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. That's a great warning to ministries today because even though uh, I think that a lot of times over time there's been many ministries that have started out totally pure, at some point in time Jesus was removed from the head and certain pastors or, or, or personalities become the head of the church. And that should never happen. Jesus says, I am the preeminent. I'm over the church. I'm above all these things. And then lastly, Jesus himself speaking in Revelation chapter 1, and this is just before he speaks to the church of Ephesus. Revelation chapter 1, and Jesus says this to John the Apostle, uh, who was there in Alapatmos, starting in verse, um, we'll look at two verses, verse 8 and 11. He says to John, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. This is Jesus speaking of himself. He doesn't hold back here, does he, folks? He doesn't say, well, you know, I'm not really that big a deal. Then he goes on, verse 11. He says it again. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last. What you see, write to the church. Write the book in the seven churches of Asia. And the first one there is to Ephesus. I am the first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega. See, Jesus, he's the beginning. He's the middle and he's the end. Amen? He's central to creation. He's central to the origin of everything. He's central to matter, time, and space. He's central to the Word of God. He's central to scriptures. He's central to life. He's central to forgiveness. He is central to the resurrection of the dead. He is central to our salvation. He's central to the church. He's the center of it all. He is, as Paul says here in these first five verses, Paul's saying, this is Jesus, exhibit A, his name five times, five times to the Ephesians. Because he is the one that we're bought by his blood, right? It's him, not us. It's not our opinions, not our ministry, not our gifts. He's at the center of everything. I don't know about you, but I hope you're with me on this. What a comfort to know that Jesus is at the center that he's at the center. Even when we forget he's at the center, he's still at the center. That he, can, he is at the center of our lives. He's at the center of this church. He's at the center of heaven. He's at the center of earth. He's at the center of all eternity. And by the way, he's at the center whether anyone acknowledges it or not. Amen. If someone says, well, I don't believe he's at the center, it doesn't change the fact that he's at the center. He's not asking for anyone's approval. 
He says, I am the beginning and end. He's like, if you believe I'm the beginning and end, he doesn't say that. He can say, if you believe I'm the beginning and end, then I guess I am. He is. It's just like the sun sits at the center of our solar system, whether a one-year-old knows it or not. It doesn't matter if a one-year-old knows it. He, uh, the sun still sits at the center of our solar system. It doesn't matter if the world thought it was flat. It wasn't flat. It was round. He's at the center. And Paul went from city to city informing people that Jesus, not their false gods, was the center of it all. Diana wasn't the center. Jesus was the center. But when we not only acknowledge that Jesus is at the center, but we submit and surrender him as the center of our lives and the highest priority of our lives, then we enter into the blessing of being called faithful, which is what Ephesus was called in these first five verses. That's when we're called faithful. In the first three chapters of Ephesus, it lays out the centrality of Christ. In these first three chapters, we'll see that Jesus is the center of the blueprint for the church, the blueprint for our individual lives. If Jesus isn't the center, we're on shifting sand. Amen? Amen. This church will collapse if Jesus is not the center. But the gates of hell can't prevail against it if he is at the center. Isn't it great? It is an all-or-nothing proposition. Last couple things real quick. He's the center What's the source? Jesus is the center. Well, it says here in verses 1 through 5, it says, Paul, an apostle Jesus, by the will of God. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, he chose us in him. God the Father chose us in his Son. Um, if Jesus is the center, the sent one, the Father is the sovereign sender. Jesus is the center. The Father is the sender. He sent the Son. This is made abundantly clear in the whole of Scriptures. Through the Father, the Son, uh, although the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they're all equal. We agree on that, right? They're all equal. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they're all equal. And one in power and authority, yet they are individual in identity and role within the Trinity. The Son submitting to the Father, empowered by the Spirit. That makes sense? The Son submitting to the Father, empowered by the Spirit. And so the source of our hope and the source of our redemption and our salvation is from God the Father. That's why Jesus said when you pray, what do you say? Our Father, which art in heaven. We pray the source through the Son, by the Spirit. And this is what Paul emphasizes. This is a mini-theological piece of the preaching, merely many, because we're going to get into this in the next couple weeks. But this is what Paul emphasizes to the Ephesians at the outset of this letter. And it reminds that the source points to the Father, but that Jesus is the center that keeps bringing us back to the source, bringing us back to the origin of salvation. It's God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. He sent. The source of Christ is the Father. The source of Paul's calling is the Father. The source of your salvation is the Father. The source of the Scriptures is the Father. The source of us being here this morning is God's sovereign will. All of that is the source. And then the last thing, as we come to a close here, 4 and 5, is the plan. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame, before him in love, having predestined us as adoptions as sons, 
and you can say daughters, this is inclusive, by Jesus Christ himself according to the good pleasure of his will. The unfolding plan of God is only unfolding for us. Let me say that. The unfolding plan of God is only unfolding for us. The plan doesn't unfold for God. He's above the unfolding. We don't know what tomorrow holds, so it unfolds for us. God sits out of time. It's not unfolding for God. He's doing the unfolding, but it's not. He already knows the unfolding. For us, it's unfolding. For us, we're revealed these things. We're still bound by time and space. But Paul makes it clear that God's not. Jesus isn't. He chose us in him before the foundations of the world, Paul says here. Before you and I were ever thought of, at least by other human beings, God already had us in mind. Our design, what we would look like, how we would act, how we would irritate people, all those things would be, <laughs> would be known. You know? Who you would never connect with if, if God didn't help with the matter. You know, those, those kind of things. But, um, see, God didn't create the world, see it was such a wreck, and then said, I need to come up with a backup plan. That's not what happened. Man, this did not work. This whole Adam and Eve thing didn't work out. You know, the garden didn't work out. And who knew the snake would be this messed up? You know, that kind of thing. We need a backup plan. Jesus, would you be willing? No. It was already part of God's plan that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were unified that this is how it was going to go. That there was going to be a fall, but there was going to be a redemption. Now, I don't have time to get into all the theological aspects of that, because that actually raises a lot of questions with people. Eight million questions with people. Why, why if God could stop? I, yes, you got to believe first, and then God will help you understand all the rest of it, to the extent that we can. But the plan was always Jesus. It's always been to call us to him by his son. And God knew from the beginning that we would not seek him, so he came to do what? Seek us. He knew we wouldn't seek him. I certainly wasn't seeking him back in 1995. The disciples, you know, they weren't looking for Jesus. He kept coming to them and did this. Come and follow me. Right? They weren't like saying, hey, we want to follow you. He came to them and said, come and follow me. That's what you got to tell people. Come to church. Come with me this Sunday. Because God's seeking them through us. I knew I wasn't looking for the Lord before I was saved. I was looking for pleasure. And I could not really ever find it until Jesus introduced me to living water that's only to be drank from at the foot of the cross. That's when it happened for me and, Lord willing, for you. And Christian... Last thing here in verse 5, look at this perfect plan in verses 4 and 5. Look at this perfect plan uh, prepared be uh, before the foundation of the earth by the Father, especially for you and me. Uh, the first one, these, these five things that he says. Number one, you've been called to be holy. You've been called to live a holy and righteous life. So I, I can never do that. Exactly. That's where grace comes in. That's where you need the Holy Spirit. Number two, uh, it says to be holy that we should be holy without before him, without blame before him. What does that mean? To live a life of worship. Their life is to be lived before him, at his feet, just like the angels do. Holy, holy, holy. That's a form of worship. That our lives to be a life of worship. Number three, it says, before him in love. You know, people say, oh, I'm in love. 
I, I've never kind of talked that way, but some people do talk that way. <laughs> I can express that me and my wife are in love, but I don't say it quite that way. It's not like a Cupid arrow kind of thing. But with God, we really are in love, not, not in love of feeling. You're literally in, like being completely in a pool. We're completely drenched by his love once we come to realize that that's what he's done for us. We're in, literally in love. We're no longer to be in fear and to be in frustration, to be in anger and to be in anxiety and to be in hatred and all these things, but to abide in love. That's what Jesus said, to abide in my love. Number four, he said that he has adopted us as sons and daughters. We are divine. The part of the plan of God, original plan, was he was going to adopt us into a family. If you don't have a family, you have one now. You have one now. To grow in the family by grace, and a family needs lots of grace, doesn't it? That's how families grow. They need a lot of grace. And then number five, it says to... Um, he's accepted as far as, sorry, according to the good pleasure of his will, and that our lives would please the Lord. Our lives would please the Lord. Now, he doesn't really need us to have good pleasure. He doesn't need anything from us, but he chooses to find pleasure in rewarding us with eternal life, but also the abundant life of the Spirit now. It pleases the Lord to see his plan received by us instead of rejected by us. Because a lot of people reject the plan of God. I don't want that plan. I want my plan. Okay. Your plan only gets to last less than 100 years. Not even as long as the Temple of Diana, 600 years. But he says, it's his good pleasure that we would receive the plan, embrace the plan. God loves to love his kids. But they have to say, yes, the Lord, your will be done. And they have to stop trying to find peace and fulfillment outside of Jesus being what? The center. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer.